Network on SB Nation Radio. Find the show on Twitter at Talk of Fame Net. Here are your hosts, Rick Goslin, Ron Borges, and Clark Judge. Well, after last week's show, we got some complaints that said, Ron, you know this because you passed it along. What was with the host? You guys are always asking that question. Uh, he sounded like he was on a phone. What was that all about? Well, I sounded like I was on a phone because uh, I was on a phone. I couldn't get to the studio. So yeah, I, I called it in or mailed it in, phoned it in. And today, if it sounds as if I'm uh, actually losing my voice. You've been accused of that before, mailing it in, by the way. <laughs> yeah, and phoning it in. <laughs> well, if it sounds like I'm losing my voice today, guys, it's because I am. So I lost the way to the studio last week. Lost my voice this week. Ron, what's next? Well, uh, maybe hopefully uh, lose your love for Tom Brady. Goose, myself, and our listeners no. can only hope so. No, no, no way. Please, no. I'm begging you. Not Tom Brady, and especially not you guys. Um, but I tell you what, Ron, I, I do know what's next for us. We have Hall of Fame candidates, Simeon Rice and Alan Fanick in the house today. You like that segue, Ron? You know, you did nicely done. Pretty yeah, smooth, uh, like as well 10W30. There you go. As well as NFL historian John Turney of Pro Football Journal and Hall of Fame voter Gary Myers from New York to talk about what else, the Giants, Eli, and what's next for them. And Gooseman, um, you know what's next because you're in Dallas. The Cowboys are what's next for New York. And given all that's gone down the past few days there, I'll be honest with you. I, I think I like this game. I could watch it. I mean, it, this could be fascinating for spectators and really a hornet's nest for your team, the Dallas Cowboys. Well, Clark, I don't believe my team, Michigan State, is playing the Giants. <laughs> but if they were, I'd still take the Holiday Bowl bound Spartans. And I like the Cowboys in this one as well. They'll do exactly what they did last week against the Redskins, run the ball. Except this week, they'll be running against the NFL's worst run defense, the Giants will have emotion. I grant you that, but emotion rarely overcomes truly bad football. Well, Goose, quick now, because you're Dr. Data. What do you think Eli's future is, either New York or the NFL? I like Eli being reunited in Florida with his old coach Tom Coughlin, playing for the Jaguars next season. The Jaguars need a quarterback. Eli needs a change of scenery. Perfecto. Ronnie? Well, I agree. It also allows Blake Bortles to learn how to play quarterback from somebody who knows how to play quarterback, unlike himself. (laughs) Well, guys, I know what our future is. It's a commercial. Yes, sir. When we return, we'll sit down with Hall of Fame voter Gary Myers of the New York Daily News to talk about Eli. This is the Talk of Fame Network. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. Well, a lot going on in New York these days, you know, and it's not all happening at Rockefeller Center. Nope. In case you missed it, there was a blue flu there this week, as in the head coach and GM flying the coop with GM Jerry Reese and coach Ben McAdoo. They were fired Monday after the Eli Manning benching blew up on everyone, in fact, including owner John Mara. But for more on that, we have our Hall of Fame voter and New York Daily News columnist Gary Myers with us. Gary, of course, is a frequent guest on the show and has written about the Mannings before, both with his book on Peyton and Tom Brady and his latest offering, My First Coach, which you can find in your neighborhood bookstore. So, Gary, um, you've been covering the Giants for a long time, and I realize there have been potholes along the way. I mean, I think of the Miracle in the Meadowlands, for instance, the Ray Hanley situation. But where does this fiasco, the Eli Manning fiasco, rank since you've been covering these guys? Well, I think you have to go back to um, see, June of 94 
when out of nowhere George Young cut Phil Sims, um, much to the despair of uh, of uh, Wellington Mara and um, and Dan Reeves, who, who was the coach at the time, and he was the first big salary cap casualty, and he was coming off a season in which the Giants were eleven and five, if I remember correctly, and they lost a first round playoff game. Sims. It pulled all the some surgery. coming off of it. George was concerned about that. And I think the public reaction then, they have to remember it was a much different time because no social media and there weren't as many talk shows as there are now. But um, um, I, I think in terms of impact, I have to go back that far. Uh, and that was had a permanency to it because it still got cut. I've never seen a reaction anywhere in the league to a player getting benched, as happened with Eli last week, both from current teammates, you know, more former teammates, and then players around the league speaking up on his behalf. It, it was just an, an amazing outpour of, uh, I would say, even... Gary, ben McAdoo blamed Eli by sitting him last week. So how much of the blame for this sorry season do you place at the feet of Eli Manning? Well, he hasn't played well. He hasn't played well since the first snap in Dallas, you know, back in back in September. So, um, I'm not sure that he is the kind of player that can rise above the fray when when things are going really poorly. Um, he has to have everything in place for him. the offensive line. He's got to have a running game. Uh, he's got to have receivers. He, he's not. He's not one of these guys like Brady. You can basically put anybody out there with him, and they get a score. 25 points a game. So uh, I don't think there's any question that Eli um, uh, is on the, on the downside. He's been that way for a couple of years. Uh, but the Giants did not put him in a position to succeed this year. They brought back the same offensive line that they had last year, which was the biggest problem on the team. And then they just started getting hurt all over all over the place. And as John Maris said uh, on Monday when he announced these firings, it was almost like a perfect storm that um, everything that could have gone wrong with it for the Giants this year really has gone wrong. You know, Gary, you mentioned John Mara, and it seems to me he's a far cry from Wellington Mara, who I knew well, uh, at least when it comes to dealing with football matters. Uh, the fiasco with the abusive kicker, the fiasco with Tom Coughlin, the fiasco with Eli, the fiasco with the hiring and firing of McAdoo and Reese. Is this well, uh, now, you know, there, wasn't is a, there was not a fiasco with Tom Coughlin. Uh, so I disagree with you on that. Well, I don't know. Um, talk to Tom I mean, over a couple cocktails. Huh? <laughs> what? I said talk with Tom I mean, over a couple cocktails. I look at whatever. The point is, there's been a lot of there's a okay. fiesta of fiascos down there, and Mara's at the top of the food chain. So what's right. going on? How much responsibility does he bear for these things? Well, I, I, I can speak to like the last two things: the Josh Brown situation, which you mentioned. The, the you know, kicker who um, eventually pretty much got kicked out of the league for the domestic violence. But at the time, uh, they just started becoming public. You know, the Giants brought him back, and then the following year, even with more information, they gave him a two-year contract extension, and, and that was John signing off on it. Um, so I put a lot of the blame there. And then just just the situation with Eli, it, it just shows uh, how they just completely misgaged what they thought the public reaction would be. Because on, um, let's say, a week ago Monday, when um, John was told by Jerry Reese that uh, McAdoo was going to go to Eli and, um, 
and explained to him that he should reduce his playing time. John asked, what was the, what's the plan? And he was told, you know, that's going to start the first half, and Geno Smith would start the second half. And John signed off on it. He had every opportunity to say, listen, we're not playing Little League Baseball here. You know, we're going to be fair to everybody. You know, uh, he, what he really wanted was for Eli to play until the circumstances of the games dictated a change. Right. But he didn't express that, and he signed off on this plan that just led Eli to saying, oh, I don't want to be part of it. So they started Geno. Uh, so I would place a lot of blame on that one on, on John because he was in a position to say, hey, this is not going to go over well. As a quick follow-up to that, it also struck me that they, don't, they didn't understand who Manning was. I mean, if you knew Eli, you should have known he's not going to buy into that. Like you say, this is like a little league thing. He's not going to. How, well, Ronnie, not how about this? Well, let me just say this. Here's the thing, and I think I might have been the only one to write about this. Since when can the player tell the coach, I don't like your playing time plan, I'm not playing? Eli has not been criticized at all for basically taking his ball and going home and refusing to play. How about that? Did you yeah. criticize him? He took his ball home against San Diego in the draft? <laughs> Ouch. Well, I mean, he, he did that, and he got away with it. Um, <laughs> Same media. Right? And John Elway got away with it, too, and it turned out to be a pretty good career move for each of them. But I've never heard of a player, starting quarterback, being told by his coach, you're going to start the first half. And even though it was stupid to say, okay, Geno's going to start the second half, is Eli really in a position to say no? He is if, he is if Geno's his backup. <laughs> It's just a mess. I mean, I've never really seen anything like this before. We're we're speaking with Hall of Fame voter and New York Daily News columnist Gary Myers on the Talk of Fame Network. And you can find us on the web at talkoffamenetwork.com or on Twitter at talkoffamenet. You can find Gary on Twitter at Gary Myers, N-Y-D-N. Gary, in August, I believe you picked the Giants to win the Super Bowl. So in your mind, where did it all fall off the rails? As soon as I picked them. (laughs) (laughs) Kiss of death, right. (laughs) Um, You know, I I guess I just, I bought into the idea that they won 11 games last year. The defense was terrific. The offense was terrible. And the offense just had to be better. Because it didn't look to take much more. And I I have to admit, obviously, I was completely wrong. And I realized that after the second week of the season, when he scored a total of 13 points. And Jordy Reese came back with exactly the same offensive line from last year that um, was the biggest problem on the team, and he was just counting on these guys, these young guys developing. When um, And it turned out to be a terrible mistake and probably sabotaged the season. And then, you know, in the fifth game, they lost uh, Odell Beckham and Brandon Marshall to season-ending ankle injury. Strong Shepard. Hurt his ankle and was out for a couple of weeks. And Wayne Harris, their fourth receiver, suffered a season-ending injury. I mean, they, they lost the top four receivers in one game. And um, from that point, uh, you know, they lost that game. They were all in five. And then I just think the dissension started. Players started speaking up against McAdoo. He had to suspend Dominic rogers Camardi and, and Janoris Jenkins. It just deteriorated, and it, it happens so quickly that it makes your head spin. And considering this is a team that won 11 games last year, uh, it's been the most staggering and 
rapid decline of a team I think I've ever seen. Um, if they wind up winning two games this year, I'm going to have to start looking this up, but has ever, any team ever gone from winning 11 games to winning two games the next season? I know it's been the other way around. Yeah. I remember the Colts were 3-13 one year and 13-3 and three the next right. uh, in, uh, in Payton's first two years. I don't remember a team going minus nine in victories from one year to the next. <laughs> That's <laughs> tough to do. That is you're, tough to do. You're covering it. Hey, Gary Myers, th- thanks for the time. Appreciate you coming on. Good luck with the Cowboys okay. this week. Okay, fellas, so we'll see you in the Hall of Fame room. There you go. Thanks, <laughs> Thanks Gary. Gary. That was Hall of Fame voter and New York Daily News columnist Gary Myers. Up next, it's more ugly stuff this time from Monday's Baltimore-Cincinnati game. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. Well, there's a game played this week that had several Hall of Famers up in arms. That was the Cincinnati-Pittsburgh Monday night telecast that, for all intents and purposes, looked like uh, the body bag game between the Eagles and Washington in 1990. You guys remember that, right, Goose? Yes, sir. Um, that was a good one. Well, in this one, Steelers linebacker Ryan Shazier, of course, suffered a serious back injury. Joe Mixon was carted off with a head injury. Then we had Vontez Burfecht, who, of course, is no stranger to violent hits. Uh, he was on the receiving end of a Juju smith Schuster blow in the fourth quarter, which is bad enough, but to me, what was worse was Juju Smith-Schuster standing over him, much like Chuck Begnerick with Frank Gifford in 1960. I think Ron was at that game, probably. Yes, sir. That game. I did. Anyway, Chuck was taunting him, and Juju's teammate, Antonio Brown, called this hit karma. So Smith-Schuster was suspended a game. Bengals' George Iloko was suspended again for a headshot of Antonio Brown. And what's more, Hall of Fame quarterback Troy Aikman called it terrible for the NFL in the game of football overall. And Hall of Fame wide receiver Chris Carter said of the game, it was beyond football. And, quote, this isn't what competition is all about, unquote. Goose, they're Hall of Famers. Are they right? Well, I think Shazier and, and Mixon have suffered their injuries during football plays. But Smith Schuster's act, that second me. He, he blindsides a player. And then stands over him. It's like sucker punching a guy and then yeah. asking for the title belt. I mean, you want to hit Fontes Burvick, hit him face to face, and then live with the consequences. I wouldn't want to be Smith Schuster the next time the Steelers play the Bengals. He's going to pay for that stunt. You know, once upon a time, players respected the game. That went out the window when the NFL legalized celebrations. That's the ultimate yeah, taunt. Right. This game has become personal. I, I swear, Ron, that, that, that picture of him standing over me, it did remind me of Ben Nerick and Gifford in 60. You know, when Ben oh, Nerick yeah. was standing over, it did. Yeah. No, well, it did. And, and, of course, here's the irony. That's become an iconic picture. Yeah, you know, right. Ben Nerick with that one fist coming down and his leg up and dancing over this guy. And, and people, But people looked at it differently in those days. We all did. Yeah. Uh, you know, spending 10 years with the Raiders, you know, I've seen, uh, you know, that and a lot worse from what mm-hmm. I saw. You know, hell, uh, in Pittsburgh, uh, I saw Bob Moore not be able to get into the hotel the day before the game without getting beaten up by a fan. Uh, you know, it was one of the great things. That, uh, But now we look at all these things differently. Uh, but, you know. You're right. That was more like gang violence and gang tackling. Yeah, right. uh, and it started almost immediately. Everybody's now forgotten the dust-up, you know, minute into the game with Burfecht and Antonio Brown. I mean, they were ready to, to fight in the, you know, in the food line. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, and then in the end, they both get leveled. So, you know, what the hell are we doing out there? Well, you know, it's funny. You, you talk about Pittsburgh. I always thought that the Baltimore-Pittsburgh rivalry was the best in football because it, it was physical, it was tough, and it was always competitive. And, and, and it still is. 
But I, I never had the feeling that it was, quote, beyond football, as Chris Carter says, or, or, or terrible for the NFL. It, it just seems, Ron, as if that Pittsburgh-Cincinnati, as Goose has mentioned, you mentioned, it's more personal and, and sort of irrepressible and out of bounds. Yeah, yeah, well, I think th- th- it is. And, and look, we've had... Uh, I'm trying to remember. I don't want to say the wrong guy. I think it was uh, Steve Smith who, who came on the show, and, and you know, and and Heinz Ward, and they both talked about hating the other team. You know, you know how many often, uh, you know, you don't. We had Villapiano, and he didn't say he hated Franco Harris. You know, <laughs> I mean, right. uh, that's the level that it's sunk to for whatever reason. And I think, uh, and I'm not blaming uh, any one individual for it because it doesn't get the way it is between uh, those two teams uh, by one or two guys. But I thought the way Marvin Lewis handled it after the game. Uh, Frankie was a fireable offense. You know, I mean, don't act like you didn't see what went down out there. And and, and don't tell me you if you don't understand what that means uh, for a lot of people watching the game and for the game itself, well, then you don't belong in the game either. Mm-hmm. Ronnie, take it back to the 2005 playoffs and the Bengals won the AFC North, had a right. real shot at the Super Bowl with Carson right. Palmer coming off his yeah. best season. Right. Cincinnati draws Pittsburgh, the wild card round. Palmer's season's and his season comes to an end on the very first pass of the day, when Steelers nose tackle Kimo Van Offenhoffen tackled him low, blowing out his knee. Right. The rivalry has not been the same since. Yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. That's right. I think you're right. That's right. Well, right. hey, Goose. You know, I, I saw where one former player said that uh, he thought the injuries and violence from this game were more of a concern to the future of the NFL than any protest this season. Do you agree? Just put it on the checklist. Violence, concussions, protests, domestic violence, overexposure. I think if the NFL unravels, it will be all of the above, not just the violence. You know, violence hasn't threatened the existence of boxing or mixed martial arts. Well, you know, that, that's true. But, you know, in, in, in you take boxing, for example, as you guys know, that's, that's you know, really the s- sport I love the most. Uh, what? Everybody, everybody knows what it is. You know, everybody knows what it is. It's two guys in their underwear trying to take each other's head off. You know? <laughs> yeah. Football, they give them a ball, so you have the illusion that it's actually about the ball. But it's become a, a game, and maybe it's always been really a game. I certainly, I know the, the Raiders play it that way. It was about intimidating the other people into not wanting to play anymore. Yeah, it wasn't but. about matriculating the ball. It was about knocking your block off. And now they're bigger uh, artificially. They're faster artificially. And... I don't know how Antonio Brown, he must have sawdust in his head because I don't know how he survived that hit that he yeah, took yeah. without his head you know, just spinning off his shoulders. Right, you know, Ron, did you, Ron, did you like rollerball? Yeah, 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 exactly. yeah, exactly. yeah that was good. Well, you know, I was going to say, Ron, you know, that's what I love about you and, and Gooseman. You two guys in your underwear just trying to knock each other's block off every week. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, hey. But, you know, but these guys are right, and I think it's alarming to a lot of viewers, not all. But I think it's alarming, or it was alarming to enough viewers. I mean, even Gruden had sense enough to, to, yeah. to feel it and, and speak about it uh, after the game in yeah, a way right. that was pretty impassioned. Right. Um, Ron, since you mentioned, um, you know, what was going on with the, the, the coach of the, the Bengals, and I'm talking about Marvin, of course, Marvin Lewis. Right. There's a bigger question here. That, that was a huge loss for the Bengals, and Goose, I'll direct this to you. Um, they're all but out of the playoffs. And with Marvin in the last year of his contract, I'm just wondering what's next for him because I, I can't imagine him coming back. I mean, he did what he was supposed to in his, in his 14, 15 years there, which was get the Bengals to the playoffs. But then, of course, as we know, he came up empty 0-7 there in the postseason, including a couple losses to Pittsburgh. So what's next for him, do you think? I think he'll go the route of John Gruden, Bill Cowher, Tony Dungy, Jimmy Johnson, 
to a TV studio if mm-hmm. he so chooses. But he's turning 60 next year. You know, he may go the Chuck Knoll route. It's been enjoyable, guys, but it's time to say goodbye. Yeah, well, I, you know, I, I, I can see that. You know, it's just, uh, it's a very strange time, you know, for the, uh, certainly it's a very strange time for the Bengals. You know, I mean, I keep looking at that team, and either I don't understand football talent or they don't understand football talent because I keep looking at that team and saying, those guys are pretty good. Yeah. Uh, at the bottom, they're pretty good, and in the end, they they're going in reverse. Well, they were missing a lot of guys in the secondary last night. I, yeah, I well, mean, yeah, I, last I, night, but I, I mean, mean, in general, you know, the, the, they should Monday have had yeah. vastly more success, in my opinion, than they've had. Yeah. Uh, well, Goose, let's stay in the state of Ohio. What about Hugh Jackson? I mean, he made history last week, but not in a good way. He's the first NFL coach to lose 27 of his first 28 games with the same team. I mean, we, we've talked about the Giants and their house cleaning oh, with Gary Myers. Uh, wouldn't you expect the same thing again from Cleveland? Your front office trades away from Carson Wentz and Deshaun Watson in the last two drafts, and you want to blame the coach. It's time to look in the mirror. Without a quarterback, the Browns have been asking Jackson to go big game hunting with a squirt gun. <laughs> the front office has handcuffed Jackson with bad drafted decisions, and now you want to, the coach to walk the plank? The owner should fire his football people. Then he should fire himself. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I tend to agree with Goose on, on, on this one. I think... Uh, uh, you know, you look at those geeks in the front office with their, you know, with their you know, pocket protectors, uh, you know, telling you that, that Carson Wentz can't play and Jared Goff can't play and we've crunched the numbers, you know, and, and we're going to go with, you know, some guy named Kaiser. Uh, you know, the last Kaiser to be have any success at all was in Germany. And it didn't work out that good for him. All rise. Here comes the judge. Ooh, I love that cue. All rise, because I'm in the house with this week's State Your Case. And it's an easy one for me to make this week because it's first-year eligible Steve Hutchinson, who's one of the 27 semifinalists for the class of 2018. Now, I wrote about him this week on our website, and that would be talkoffamenetwork.com. And I'm here to tell you what I like about him, which is everything. Steve Hutchinson was a seven-time All-Pro, seven-time Pro Bowler, an all-decade choice, Goose. One thing he wasn't, he wasn't a Michigan State grad, but you know what? That's okay. Furthermore, according to Pro Football Reference, he's one of only 12 modern-era offensive linemen to be named first-team All-Pro five times. Nine of those 12 were in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. The other three, Joe Thomas, Alan Fanica, and Steve Hutchinson. Now, of course, we know Fanica, who's a guest on today's show, has been a finalist, a Hall of Fame finalist, the past two years, and he's in line ahead of Steve Hutchinson, but... Both have something working against them, and it's something they can't control. You guys know what I'm talking about. They play a position, namely guard, that voters have trouble warming up to. I mean, it took all-decade guard Will Shields, who's a 12-time Pro Bowler, seven-time All-Pro, and a guy who never missed a game, never, four tries to get into Canton. And you two are on the senior committee. You had to bring back former Detroit star Dick Stanfield three times before he finally made it. All I know about Steve Hutchinson is that he was one of the best at his position. And he, when he was in Seattle, Sean Alexander ran for a zillion yards. He was a league MVP. And when he was in Minnesota, Adrian Peterson, well, he ran for a zillion yards. But there's something else I know about him. He and Alan Fanica both were first team all decade. Cowboys Larry Allen and Will Shields, they were backups on that all decade unit. And they're in the Hall of Fame. Fanica and Hutchinson aren't. Not yet. So let's get the line moving, guys. Alan Fanica this year, Steve Hutchinson next. 
Clark, if you study his resume and his list of accomplishments, are there really five more worthy candidates on this ballot than Hutchinson? Um, it's close, Goose. I mean, you look at Ray Lewis, I think it was 13 Pro Bowls, 10 All-Pros all decade. Uh, Alan Fanica, of course, nine Pro Bowls, eight All-Pros, including six first-team nominations, also all decade. Kevin Mawai is on, on there, too. Um, eight Pro Bowls, eight All-Pros. Um, I, I go the other side of the ball, uh, safety Brian Dawkins. Nine Pro Bowls, six All-Pros, um, but four first teams with Dawkins. So, so the competition is tight. Uh, that's why I'm interested to see if or how we think the offensive line candidates are going to work themselves out. It's going to be close and it's going to be tight. Well, speaking of Hall of Fame semifinalists, we have one waiting to speak to us, and that would be first-year semifinalist Simeon Rice. He's coming up right after this. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. Well, after years of trying to reach the semifinals, our next guest is finally there. I'm talking, of course, about former defensive end Simeon Rice, who was one of the 27 semifinalists for the Hall's Class of 2018 and who has been outspoken on this program before, telling us, I think it was about a year or two ago, I know I'm a Hall of Famer. Well, now he's officially on the road to Canton because he's on the ballot. Simeon, congratulations. Welcome back, and welcome back to the country. Uh, thanks on both accounts. <laughs> yeah, where'd you, where did you... Here, and it's good to be here. <laughs> where did you go? You Where did you go? You went overseas. You should have came. I went to Abu Dhabi. I went to the Maldives. And I went to Dubai. Wow. It was a great time. Terrific. Real, well, it's great. A really, really good time. Great to have you back. Um, we haven't spoken to you since you reached the semifinals for the first time, so I'm going to ask you, surprised, elated, what? What's your reaction? Yeah, you, you know what? Um, for my parents, for my mom and my pops that's not here anymore, it's a bittersweet in, in, that, in that regard. Uh, but for what it's worth, it, it's an honor to be, obviously it's an honor to be honored all the time. I never want to make a light of that and, and, and just, but... It, 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 it's something that's been long awaited. It's, it's, it's respectable. It's something that I can appreciate, that I'm humbled by. I'm more humbled than anything, you know, for so many different reasons. I think just for the sake of having my name on the list now and, you know, and, and, and having a step forward and being recognized for something that I was able to do. I never forget that Rod Marinelli, my, my position coach, when I was playing, he said to me, now you're the the stage where you're the best in this game. Now, how are you going to play off of that? What are you going to do when you're at the top? It's what, it's how you get better when you're at the top. It's really going to really speak for yourself. And being able to remember words like that and have moments like this, it, it kind of brings everything full circle. So it's, it's, it's amazing. And, 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 and for me, starting the game many, many, many moons ago, all right, as a kid, Looking back on the game now in my life and having my early invocation or introduction of watching Walter Payton play and the energy he used to, to play this game and how he prepared for his season and me trying to emulate that in such a way, even at my playing defensive end, it, it harkens back to all those moments of, of, just, of just the grind, of the sweat and the blood and the tears and the things that it would take. Wanted to get to a certain point in his life to be on a list like this. It, 
it's an integral part of my life, and it's a uh, it's a humbling moment. So, Simon, what do you think changed after all these years? It's not like this is your first year of eligibility. So, what happened? <laughs> um, what happened? Like, what happened? What happened? Like, why am I on the list? Or to pick up a couple more snacks these last few well, years? <laughs> uh, you know, I, I just think people are recognizing. Uh, I think that. I think the fact that my position coach, Rob Marinelli, who is now the defensive coordinator, he sent a tape in of me doing work. I think, you know, I think that changed. Uh, some, and, and he sent the, uh, uh, he made a tape of myself doing work against, you know, some of the Hall of Famers that's already, that's already in, in the Hall of Fame, like uh, Jonathan Ogden and some of the greats that played when, when I was playing. And, and, you know, they was able to see me dominate guys uh, at the highest level, and maybe that has something to do with it. I don't know. Maybe the pay. I, I, I don't know, fellas. I'm happy to be here. I, I don't know. Yeah, right. the that, but the fact that I'm being recognized is the thing that's. I think that's the thing that's the most important. You know, everybody have a time, and I think this is a time that you know they say, "Okay, Simeon, we're looking at you from a serious standpoint." You know, and and it's cool. You know what I mean? For whatever it's worth. And I'm trying to be as political correct as I possibly can be, but this is this is where my mind is now. I'm in a good, healthy space, and I think that it comes down to those practicalities sometimes. Sometimes you got to let the things marinate, and as they get marinate, as they marinate, things get better, and you're able to see things from a clear perspective. So I think with that clear perspective, things has, has changed the way that people kind of like looked at me prior to now. So now is the time where people are looking at me with a certain level of different level of clarity or a different level of appreciation for whatever that's worth. Had you gotten to the point at all uh, where you had sort of given up to a degree or just sort of dismissed it and say, well, you know, it's, it looks like it isn't going to happen? Or, or did you still have hope? Yeah, like this. Okay. So when I finished, I was on my way to being an all-time, all-time sack leader prior to my injury. Okay, so I, a man has to know his worth. You have to know, and that's not arrogance. You just have to know. You you should know. You should know. It's it's it's, it's a liberation in that 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 who you were and what you were about. And I knew, and I knew because I played the so I I dominated the game like. Like nobody ever did before, and, and and the fact the way they came and how I played and the energy I played with, and I remember it, it, I lived the script. So the script is was me. I, I remember when I, when I came to Tampa and, and I was on the phone with Rich McKay, and I told Rich within a year or two we're gonna win a Super Bowl, and they're gonna say he's, it was genius like being able to bring me down to Tampa from Arizona. I remember that, and I remember hugging. Uh, we we hugging at the Super Bowl at the confetti fall, and he said, "Wow, Simeon, you kept your word." I remember I was the guy that they were grabbing me, heading towards the podium for uh, to do the to do the to do the uh, I'm going to Disneyland speech, and they stopped <laughs> moments and say, "Oh wait, a minute. oh my God, Dexter Jackson won it." I'm like, you know what? Whatever. <laughs> um, you know what? <laughs> I got I got to enjoy this moment, so I'm gonna still be I'm gonna still enjoy this moment, and I'm gonna enjoy it for myself and for my teammates. So I lived those moments. I, I lived all those moments. I I, 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 I sat on the sideline. I, I 
I looked at in Warren Sapp's eyes once when he, we were on the sidelines. He said, Simeon, you got to be the baddest dude that ever played this position. After I had three sacks in the first quarter against uh, New Orleans Saints, you know, to be to be at that at that time to have the most consecutive sacks, uh, multiple sack games in a row, or something like that. So I lived all these moments. I mean, moments. I lived the moments of coming to uh, Arizona Cardinals when when we were getting beat year in and year out, not making a playoff and anchoring that defense to uh, a playoff bid for the first time and winning for the first time against the Dallas Cowboys and, you know, having the, one of the top defenses in Arizona before I got to town. I've lived those moments, you know. I, I, I was rookie of the year in the NFL, and I, I've had, had – and I say that because I've had so much success that I know what I was made of. I remember because – I remember uh, becoming an all-pro in Arizona and – and being on that list and having 16 and 17 and a half sacks or something that year, those moments were actually, those was actuality. Those moments that I actually was a part of, those moments made me who I was in, in, in regards to football. I remember getting double teamed and triple teamed, and I can explain to you how that happened. You know, guys say that, but I lived it. And I, it still didn't stop me from averaging a double sack season throughout my career. So, you know, I was able to do it. Like I said, when I finished, I was third on the all-time list coming in in terms of, you know, averaging sacks a game. You know, and before I was injured, I was number one on that list. You know, so I lived those moments, and those moments kind of led me to, to, to believe that if anybody had the career I had, they would understand it was a Hall of Fame career. So you had to be at peace as a person. You had to be at peace with the effort that you give. And if people come around to celebrate that or honor that, then that that puts the cream on the top. But beyond that, regardless of how you feel about me and how this person feel about me, or Hall of Fame, uh, uh, you know, feel about me, I have to know for myself, truthfully speaking, in honor and and and, and as an honorable as an honorable man and as an honorable player that. I was able to affect the game. I think I changed the game. I think there were rules in the game to uh, try to prevent what I was able to do in a game. You you look at that football as do, did your what you do did it change the game to an extent? What I did changed the game. You know, what I mean, what I did changed the way offensive players looked at defensive players. You know, uh, and, and and for me, I was able to usher in so many other players similar to me. Like the Javon Curtis, who I, who I personally was one of my personal favorites to watch. To the Dwight uh, uh, Freenies of the world, who another player that was fun to watch. You know, the speed guys. Because when I first came in, they didn't know what I was. Uh, <laughs> outside backer, defensive end. I never forget all those things. And uh, I was a football player, and I was able to adjust on it in any realm that that I was placed in and have success in. So. You know, and I was able to do it on two different teams in, in such a way where it led one team to win a Super Bowl. And we had one of the greatest defenses of all time. And, and my teammates to tell you, the guys that I played with, that, you know, I was the key cause to that to the Super Bowl. That when I was able to go uh, to Tampa and do what hadn't, had never been done before. And, and, and being able to revolutionize the game that in, in a way – it, with a pass rush, where 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 GMs and teams were looking for the for the next, 
And I don't know how many times I was always from Andre Wadsworth to uh, the kid, I don't remember his name, by the Clemson that passed away a few years in the first round, were all going to be the next Simeon Wright. So while I was playing, while I was still a young player, how are you going to be the next me? And I'm still here. You know what I mean? <laughs> hey, Simeon, Sim- Sim- I've, got, I've got a question for you. Um, there are only two edge rushers in this class of semifinalists. That's you and Leslie O'Neill. And both of you are first-time semifinalists. What, right. from your, what, from your perspective, differentiates the two of you? Leslie waited longer. <laughs> Leslie was great, man. I'm, man, listen, man. I was Leslie is deserving of the Hall of Fame, just as I am. Leslie is great, man. Leslie, I think I set his rookie sack record. I'll never forget that. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yep. So he deserves. He's been. He deserved the Hall of Fame and been deserving the Hall of Fame for years. Much like myself. You know what I mean? You know, I don't have any. I think that the thing that that separates us. That you know, I mean, if you look at the game, I was able to win the Super Bowl and things of that nature. You know what I mean? If you and if you judge winning, I was, you know, I was, you know, I was a winner. I was a champion. I think that's the thing. And I'm not sure if he was or not. You know, he probably was he. No, he didn't quite make it. No, no. Didn't quite yeah, make yeah, it. you know, yeah. but you know, but but that doesn't that doesn't determine that was he a Hall of Famer. He was still a Hall of Famer. You know what I mean? Again, like when I got to the NFL, my, I think in '96, that's the that's the name I remember most. Uh, setting his rookie sack record at twelve and a half sacks. I don't never. I don't think I ever experienced one uh, playoff where I just didn't flat out dominate the whole game. You know what I mean? And I mean that in the serious. Against anybody and everybody, I can always take my play up a whole nother level. And the timeliness of it. When I look at Diaz, that's what I miss now in, in watching the game. It's the mean- timeliness of it. How can you take over the game? when it matters the most. And that's what I could do. Simeon, we're going to have to run, but thanks so much for the time, and best of luck with your Hall of Fame candidacy. I mean it. Thanks so much. Fellas, thanks for having me on. Next trip, let's all do it. Fellas, You got it. That was Hall of Fame semifinal Simeon Rice. Up next, it's the two-minute drill. This is the Talk of Fame Network. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. Welcome back to the Talk of Fame Network, and you hear that sound? That's the two-minute warning. That means we're going to the two-minute drill with Ron asking the question. So, Ronnie, let's go. Here we go, boys. Eli Manning, Ben McAdoo, or Jerry, Reese's Pieces, Reese. Eli Manning, he's the only one of the three with a remote chance of a Boston Canton. Agree. Eli, he's coming. The others are going. Uh, can you be an offensive genius if, like McAdoo's Giants, your team never scored 30 points in 29 games as a head coach? Aaron Rodgers made McAdoo an offensive genius, and aging Eli Manning couldn't. Yes, you can. Ron, I consider you a genius, and you're offensive. <laughs> Tough one. Browns, Bears, or Bama? Go with the best coach. That would be Nick Saban at Alabama. Yeah, what's going on? Goose and I have the same answers here. Bama! Because there, January means something other than the next season. <laughs> Marshawn Lynch has, bought, has touched the ball 48 times in the past two games. Are the Raiders going beast mode? No, the Raiders are going win mode. Run to win in the NFL. Can't tell you, Ronnie. What happens in Oakland stays in Oakland. 
Frank Gore just passed Jerome Bettis and LaDainian Tomlinson, moving into fifth place all-time in rushing. How is this possible? You can gain a lot of yards when you start for 12 seasons on bad football teams. You're going to get the ball an awful lot. It's what happens if you play until you're 50. Hold your head, Frank Gore. First battle Hall of Famer, eventual Hall of Famer, or senior pool class president? Eventual Hall of Famer because the guys like you and me who remember how football used to be played will be long gone when Frank Gore becomes eligible. (laughs) Eventual Hall of Famer, just like Leslie Gore. Alvin Kamara is just the third rookie in NFL history with 600 yards, both rushing and passing. Is he the rookie of the year? Maybe by default. Kareem Hunt has backed out of the chase. Who's left? Yes, he is. And he's the best thing to happen to New Orleans since Mardi Gras. Who survives the NFC South? New Orleans, Carolina, or Atlanta? I like the team with the quarterback, the running game, the defense. That would be New Orleans. William Sherman. (laughs) Was Monday night steal a bagel game, old school football, Gang war or karma? That was karma Monday night that gave us an old school gang war. None of the above. It was a disgrace. (laughs) What's happened to the Chiefs? They haven't been the same since I left the beat in 1989. (laughs) (laughs) They got to jump on going south for the winter. (laughs) That's the end of the <laughs> That's going to do it for the first hour, but stay where you are. We have Alan Fanica and NFL historian John Turney coming up in hour number two. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. Find the show on Twitter at Talk of Fame Net. Here are your hosts, Rick Goslin, Ron Borges, and Clark Judge. Welcome back to our number two of the Talk of Fame Network. I'm Clark, along with Rick and Ron. We're going to hear from former guard Alan Fanica in this hour, as well as NFL historian John Turney of Pro Football Journal. John's going to weigh in on what's next, at least in his mind, for our 27 Hall of Fame semifinalists. But first, first, guys, I want to get to Jim Hart. Not Jim Ray Hart, Jim Hart. Arizona Cardinals put him in their ring of honor last weekend, and you know what? Hallelujah. It's about time. Jim Hart was a terrific quarterback. I know you guys remember him. I do. Uh, He did a lot of wonderful things for a franchise that Goose hasn't done a lot of wonderful things over the years. Hey, who could forget the cardiac cards of the 1970s? You know, he led the Cardinals to three consecutive 10-win seasons back when the NFL was playing 14-game schedules, back-to-back NFC East titles in 74-75 when the Cowboys were dominating that division. You know, during a three-year stretch, Hart led the Cardinals on 10 last-minute game-winning drives. You know, Jim Hart, Neil Lomax, Charlie Johnson, this franchise had its share of quality quarterbacks who were punished historically because they played for the Cardinals. Yeah, I love Charlie Johnson. And, you know, Ron, he mentions the cardiac uh, cards. Remember the coach of that team? Don Coryell. Sure. Hall of Fame semifinalist. You're right. No, you're right. It's it's funny. You know, the thing I remember about uh, Jim Hart is how he got the job. Uh, You know, he became a starter in 1967, the year before he'd only played one game. And he got the job because the guy you just mentioned, uh, Charlie Johnson, had an ROTC commitment, and he had to go, you know, play soldier. Boom, Jim Hart comes in and never comes out. Imagine that happening today. Not happening. No, not happening. <laughs> ROTC wasn't happening for me at college either. I, I was going to Dartmouth then, and they said, ah, no ROTC program. Oh, I guess I'm not taking the test. Hey, um, one other thing I want to mention, and uh, Ron, I'll start with you, because it's what we do here, but Greg Gumbel of CBS, <laughs> Goose. Sorry. He last weekend referred to Philip Rivers as what, Ron? 
future Hall of Famer. There you go. And your comment, Dr. Data? Philip Rivers should remain on the Canton Steps until another Rivers, secret agent man Johnny Rivers, is enshrined in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Then and only then should we start considering the Pro Football Hall of Fame credentials of Philip Rivers. I'm not sure, I'm Johnny not sure, about, Johnny, I'm not sure about Johnny going to Cleveland Rock and Roll. But How about I'd Mickey love, Rivers? <laughs> I'd love to see Philip Rivers make it to Canton, too, but there's got to be more. But with us, at least now, there has to be less. We're going to break, and when we return, it's Borges or Bogus. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. We're You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. Hey, before we go any farther, I want to give a shout-out to Houston defensive end J.J. Watt, who this week was named Sports Illustrated's Sports Person of the Year. As well, he should be. I think all of us called for it. And not for what he did on the field, but for what he did for the city of Houston. Like raised close to $40 million to help in relief for flood victims there. Now, his football safe may have become a wash after the fifth game because of that tibial fracture, but personally, he wasn't going to let his fall become a wash. You know, he initially wanted to raise 200000 in his relief for Hurricane Harvey, but that pot kept growing and growing and growing to that $40 million range. You know, there's more to life to football, and J.J. Watt is proof of that. Well, that's right, Goose. You know, it just goes to show you what uh, uh, what you can happen and what somebody can accomplish uh, if two things are uh, are key. One is something that goes viral on social media, and the other is that that the person who starts it is only interested in doing the right thing. Right. You know, he's not interested in getting famous. He's not interested in patting the back. He doesn't want to be Times Man of the Year since Mr. Trump doesn't want it. You know, uh, uh, he doesn't want any of that. He just wants to say, let's see what we can do. 200,000. Well, maybe we can get to three, 300,000. Maybe we can get to half a million. Hey, maybe we can get to a million. And the next thing you know, uh, uh, you know, it it goes off the rails. I mean, I I have to believe that he never thought for an instant that that, that it would go the way it did, but it was tremendous. tremendous. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that, Ron, because I'll be honest with you. I mean, with all the bad things going on around the NFL these days, you know, CTE, uh, Ravens, uh, I mean, the uh, Steelers and the Bengals, uh, anthem protests, Zeke Elliott, owner of Civil War. this, This has got to be a relief for the league office. I mean, finally, we have something or or someone to celebrate. Yeah, you know, you you, you would think so. Uh, uh, you know, the one thing it clearly uh, would state to me if I was a player or uh, or an owner or something is the farther you get from the league office, the better things are. You know, and, and he didn't ask for any help from the league office. You know, he didn't ask for any help really from anybody except his mom, who we kind of put in charge of running the thing, um, and. and and, and look what's come of it. But you're right. I mean, it's certainly got to be a relief for them. And, you know, it's the kind of thing they ought to be emphasizing uh, more than they than they are, frankly. Yeah, when teams say character matters on draft day, they're talking good character. J.J. Watt is the epitome of good character in the NFL. Well, speaking of celebrations, Gooseman, we had a poll run last week that, honestly, I, I thought would shut down the site. It, it didn't. But I guess those T.O. fans that shred us in the wake of his not reaching the Hall of Fame, maybe T.O. himself, they were either out of the country or out of touch because he didn't make much of a ripple in our wide receiver poll. Yeah, T.O. has been on the belt each of the last two years and didn't make the cut from 15 to 10 for either class, and he's complained about it each time. Now he finds himself on the belt with Randy Moss, who collected more touchdowns and more 100-yard games than T.O. 
And in our poll, when we asked our listeners and readers to vote on the wide receiver most deserving of a bust in the class of 2018, Moss lapped the field. He got 66% of the vote. Oh. He was next, but at a distant 14%, followed by Isaac Bruce at 9%. Ray Lewis is a slam dunk in this class, but I think Moss may be standing right behind him in the queue. Wow. that's uh, Those are interesting numbers, to say the least. And not encouraging numbers for T.O., I wouldn't think. Well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Ronnie, are, are, you, are you surprised with that result? I mean, or maybe more to the point, are you surprised by the failure of the legions of fans of anyone or everyone to show up? Well, you know, I'm surprised at the spread. You know, but I, I think it speaks to the fact that uh, not only uh, Randy's numbers uh, and his resume, but you know his mugs all over TV. You right. know, two three right. times a week, right. somebody's telling you know some other former player saying how he was the greatest receiver who ever dropped breath. Right. Uh, you know, and after a while, it just sort of burrows into people's uh, minds. I think you know, for me personally, if uh, if the three of us are going to go out uh, this coming Sunday to to play the Pittsburgh Steelers, I'd rather be going with Jerry Rice. And Lance Allworth, but that's me. <laughs> Lance Allworth, yeah, or Don <laughs> Hudson. Hey, um, Gooseman, speaking of polls, what do you got going this week? Well, there are seven defensive backs among the 27 semifinalists, four safeties and three corners. Five of the seven were all decade, and they went to a combined 44 Pro Bowls. So the question we ask is, which DB is most deserving of a bust in this coming class? John Lynch, Ty Law, mm-hmm. Everson Walls. I think there will be a defensive back in this class, but who will it be? Okay, well, speaking of the Hall of Fame goose, how about my Hall of Famer in waiting? That'd be Russell Wilson. Yeah, Russell Wilson of Seattle. You guys are knocking me on him. You know, as usual, the guy's doing everything possible to keep the Seahawks in the playoff picture. And and despite, and that's despite injuries and losses everywhere in the lineup. And he's finally, and I mean finally, getting recognized as a legitimate MVP candidate. In fact, guys, I mean, you know where I stand on Tom Brady and with Tom Brady, which is generally in line to have him sign his latest cookbook. Hey, Tom, over here. Hey, I'm over here. I'm the guy with New Jersey. Um, but if I had to vote today and all three of us vote on the MVP award, I think I'd choose Russell Wilson as my MVP because, Goose, I think he's the very definition of most valuable. Clark, at this point, I still go with with uh, Carson Wentz. He's thrown an NFL leading 29 touchdown passes to turn a last place team into a 10-2 and NFC frontrunner. Who saw this coming? That would be the very definition of most valuable. Oh, Ron, put, put uh, you know, Carson Wentz with that, as you could say, bunch of doorknobs that Russell Wilson's playing with. What do you got? You well, I'm going to Ron and I are dealing with a doorknob. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Now, I'm going I'm to put this all in, in perspective, because it's funny, Goose. When the Seahawks were 1-2 and two and scored 12 points in their victory over the 49ers, I didn't hear our man Clark saying much about Hall of Fame for Russell Wilson. Ron, he kept saying, Russell, oh, back, he had a backpedal like Deion Sanders. <laughs> exactly right. I remember him saying on this show, I always thought he was too short. To oh, yeah, right, right. You know what I like best about him? What I What's like best that? about him? He's the nephew of a Dartmouth College grad. In fact, a teammate of mine on the Dartmouth track team. That's right. Um, anyway, that'd be Ben Wilson. Hey, quick goose, man. Um, you know, uh, this guy's not going to win the award, but does Case Keenum get any MVP love for what's going on in Minnesota? In six of his 11 starts, he's thrown for one touchdown or fewer. If you're looking for an MVP candidate in the Vikings, look over on that defensive side of the ball. Yeah, he's uh, uh, you know, he's no Earl Morrill. Earl, Earl Morrill was a phenomenon, who I wrote about, by the way, in my new book, President of the Creation, but I'm just going to bring it up. But, you know, Earl Morrill had a season like, wow. I mean, you have to give him the thing, and, and I don't think Case Keenum is going to have the kind of season where if they're driving to the Super Bowl, to the game, the, his teammates aren't going to turn to each other like they did with Earl and say, hope he doesn't wake up. 
<laughs> Ron, that's your cue for Borges and Bogus. So what do you have? Uh, my nice clash between the Steelers and Bengals wasn't a football game. It was a gang war, and it's got to stop. Look, I like violence as much as the next guy and probably more than most guys. Uh, I believe the threat of it can serve to focus the mind of all involved. But what happened at Paul Brown Stadium was bogus. Half dozen players were carted off the field. Two were left immobilized, strapped to backboards and gurneys. A third, Antonio Brown, had to be the luckiest man in America to have avoided a concussion after a helmet-to-helmet headshot from George Aloka uh, while defenseless and in midair. It takes a remarkable moment to turn Bengals linebacker Vontez Burfecht into a sympathetic figure with his resume, but Juju Smith-Schuster managed to do it. Juju! <laughs> Illegal blindside hit levels him, and then he stands over him, as Clark pointed out earlier, like Chuck Benner. And then later, Juju, such an innocent-sounding name, Juju, uh, he, calls him, he, he says what he did was messed up. He wasn't referring to the hit. He was referring to standing over him after the hit. <laughs> I think he was referring to his brains. Right. That's not messed up, dude. That's bogus. I long for the days of old-time football when defense was legal. But I don't want to see NFL games turn into violent versions of West Side Story. And that's what happened not only Monday night, but also Sunday in Buffalo when the usually affable Rob Gronkowski, friend of the show, drove his 270 pounds into the neck of Tredarius White as White lay on the ground, face down, out of bounds, and defenseless. Later, Gronk apologized and then launches into a litany of justifications centering around how some form of the referees don't protect me. Yeah, Mike Tyson said that when he bit off Evander Holyfield's ear. (laughs) It was bogus then. It's bogus now. Bogus. Now, White went into concussion protocol, and Gronk was suspended for a game which would cost him around just under $300,000. Okay, fine. But fines aren't going to do it. If you want to stop this kind of stuff, forget the fines because they all make too much money as it is anyway. They don't notice. You want to stop it? You hurt a guy, you're suspended for a game longer than he's out. If he's out for a week, you're out two. If he's out six weeks, you're out seven. If he's out eight weeks, you're out nine. And if he's out for the season, see you next September. I mean, maybe that will wake these guys up. And, Ron, who makes the call? Roger Goodell? (laughs) Well, there's your problem, isn't it? Uh, (laughs) I think you just do it the way they're doing it now until, until they negotiate something different. But just... Just be consistent and, and just say, look, we're not going to stand for this. You heard a guy, you're going out for longer than he's gone. Hey, Rod, West Side Story. You like the Bengals and the Steelers or you like the Jets and the Sharks? <laughs> Very good. I like the Sharks. <laughs> hey, we got to run uh, because we have NFL story John Turney, a frequent contributor to this program. He's up next. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. Well, as we mentioned, the three of us vote this month on the 27 Hall of Fame semifinalists. We're going to cut the list to 15. But before we do, we're going to get some help from one of our favorite league historians. In fact, he is our favorite league historian, and that's John Turney of Pro Football Journal. John, welcome back, and let's get started. Trying to make sense of the next Hall of Fame class, and that would be the class of 2018. Now, first of all, as you know, we've got two first-team linebackers in here, and they're first-year eligibles. That would be Ray Lewis and Brian Erlacher. I think it's not a, uh, uh, a real stretch to say both are going to make it through to the final 15. So if you're in that room, do you push both through to the finish line as first ballot inductees, or, or are you reluctant to push two through, and I mean as inductees, especially in their first years of eligibility, because they play the same position. 
No, I really think the trend in, in the Hall of Fame and the voters has been to, to pick the best of each spot, pick the best edge rusher, for example, the, the receiver, and then it takes a consecutive years after that. So I think it's pretty clear that Ray Lewis, the eight-time All-Pro, the 118 run stuffs, 40 sacks, was the superior player to Erlacher. And Erlacher, it's no shame to get in next year for a guy like that, who, who was a great player, but only four All-Pros, for example, and fewer plays behind the line of scrimmage, that type of thing. John, let's cut to the chase. Moss or Owens? Who would I rather have on my team would be Moss. Who should get in this year? I think it's time to put Owens in. He's going to get in. I think if Moss gets in next year again, it's no shame being a second ballot eligible guy because neither measure up to the lofty standards that Jerry Rice set. I don't think we'll see another guy like that until maybe Larry Fitzgerald or uh, uh, Brown from Pittsburgh is eligible in a few years if he keeps going on his pace. I think the honor of being a first ballot Hall of Fame should go to the people who are in the truly stratosphere. That's just my view. I could be wrong. Hey, Ron. Yes? John just ruined my day. <laughs> well, he's right, though. Oh, don't, please. Don't, but don't please. let that bother you, Clark. It never yeah. has. Uh, <laughs> oh, so, John, we got a log jam, obviously, with seven DBs, three corners, and four safeties. Uh, sort of two-part question. Do you value corners more than safeties? And how would you break these guys down uh, in terms of their worthiness to go in this year? Well, I like Everson Walls a lot, but I really don't believe – He's had the complete career that the other two had. Uh, I believe Ty Law is the best corner on this ballot. It's not that Rondé Barber didn't do a lot of good things. He had 63 stuffs in his career, run stuff, 63. Warren Sapp had 63 and a half. <laughs> so here's a, here's a corner that was getting into the backfield and doing a lot of great things. But it comes down to you've got a cover two corner versus a guy who probably played man more than 50%, 60% of the time. So I believe that uh, Ty Law should advance further than Rondé Barber. We're speaking with NFL historian John Turney, a pro football journal on the Talk of Fame Network, and you can find us on the web at talkoffamenetwork.com or on Twitter at at talkoffamenet. And, John, if, if you have one or maybe two, three, whatever you want, long shots to make it through to the final 15, or, or guys you really want to see get in there who probably aren't favorites to make it, who are they? I think there's two that stand out to me personally because I like their game so much. Richard Seymour would be one. And I really like Lori Butler's game. He was a guy who played some corner before he moved to safety. But he could pick off passes. He could blitz. And he played the run really well. He's got a championship ring. I don't know that he'll make the final 15, but my dark horse for the final 15 would be Richard Seymour. I like him better than any of the edge rushers that they have on this list. John, there are 18 players in this ballot who were all-decade selections and seven who weren't. How much should all-decade acclaim weigh in the voting? I think it should matter uh, with one exception, unless a guy, and this is the exception, if a guy came in in 2005 and played through to 2015 or 2019, and he doesn't make an all-decade team because he straddled a decade, I don't think that should penalize him. But if they were eligible for an all-decade team and they made it, that should be extra bonus points. If they didn't, I think that is a, a slight ding. 
Interesting. Uh, what about guys in their last year of, of eligibility? Um, should they get special consideration because we all know the depth of the of the senior pool if you end up diving in there? Yeah, and I understand. And because of that, that's a reality. And you, and you voters, I don't envy you for that. But I really do think that should be a consideration, as long as the guy, of course, is qualified. We, you guys have a logjam at uh, offensive tackle, and if you can't separate them, who was better, who wasn't? If it was so close, and I've looked, I've tried, I've even looked at some old games on uh, videotape, and, and some of them are online. It is just impossible to tell. So I think all other things being equal, I think Joe Jacoby should get in this year. Hmm. I think next year it should be Mike Ken, which will be his last year. The year after that, go ahead and throw in Chris Hinton. And then after that would be Tony Baselli. Of course, the Jacksonville people will go crazy on you because they really want to have that first Jaguar in. But if... <laughs> But if you've got these other guys, I mean, why put Tony Baselli in now and then basically screw three or four guys in the next several years who will never get out of the senior pool? Yeah. Was he that great that he deserves to screw everybody else? Well, John, I want to ask you something about the, the other side of the ball, and that's something you mentioned earlier about Richard Seymour. You said you think he's better than the uh, edge rushers who are in this group. Uh, the edge rushers are Leslie O'Neill and Simeon Rice, who was in our first hour. We spoke to Simeon in the first hour. He thinks he is a Hall of Famer, and he thinks Leslie O'Neill should be a Hall of Famer. You don't. Uh, do you see either one of these two getting through to the final 15? I think they'll probably cancel each other out. That's just my guess. You know, of the two, I think O'Neill probably had the better reputation as a, as a guy who did make some plays against the run behind the line of scrimmage. He was a tremendous technician. But, I mean, I, obviously I'll probably be wrong well, I'll put it this way. Yes, I think one of them probably will make the final 15, but I don't think either one of them should. I think Richard Seymour was the superior football player to both of them. That's just the way I see it. Um, Rice forced a lot, quite a lot of fumbles. That was good, but he just he did not play the run that well. If you look at the Tampa Bay Buccaneers from... When he got there and afterwards, they gave up about 4.2 yards, 4 to 4.2 a year, whereas the great defenses gave up 3.5, 3.7. Part of that was the system. They got up the field and relied on playing the run while getting to the passer. But they just didn't do it like, you know, Deacon Jones and Merlin Olsen did. That's because Rodney Barber was hogging all those tackles in the run game. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> yeah, when he should have been covering people. Hey, John. <laughs> John, what's to become of Isaac Bruce? Uh, good question. Mm, good question. Well, I think um, I think he should get in maybe in about four years or three years. I think you put in the two guys that had the fifteen thousand yards, and then the next guy would be in line is, is Bruce. There's no wide receivers coming up of, of, of superior note really until Larry Fitzgerald, as near as I can tell. There's some good ones. Heinz Ward, Torrey Holt is there. Calvin Johnson will come up, I guess, maybe, before. But I think Ike would get in before that. But, you know, that's just one of those really hard ones. Is he going to be somebody that hangs around for a long, long time and gets in like Lynn Swan did on his final try? Well, here's a question that's not really directly related to, to this year's class, but uh, we talked about it uh, during the show. Frank Gore just passed. You know, nearly every running back who ever lived, and, and, you know, he's, he's fifth all time now, which led me to say, he is? 
when you think of Frank Gore, do you think of the Hall of Fame? Because to be fair, I, I've never made that connection. Well, I, I, maybe I'm going to sound really bad here, but I never made that instantaneous connection with uh, Curtis Martin in the Hall of Fame and getting in the first time. I think he was the first ballot guy. I could see that his numbers were there, but year in and year out, I never looked at him and said, hey, that's the best running back in the game. He was always a top three guy, maybe in his best year, but mostly a top seven, top ten kind of guy. And I think that's the same with Frank Gore. I never remember him being a Offensive Player of the Year, having that kind of a year. Never remembered it with Martin. Hey, John, I want to go back to what you said about the wide receivers and, and specifically Terrell Owens. Um, how do you get past the fact that he was a disruptive force in the locker room, that teams were moving on, couldn't wait to get rid of him, that you've got a Hall of Fame coach, Bill Parcells, who doesn't show up at his press conference, you've got people like um, Hall of Famer, uh, Bill Polian saying uh, you should put guys in the Hall of Fame who are productive and who help their teams, not guys who are disruptive. You've got numbers of people on the record, which is unusual, knocking this guy. How do you get past that? Yeah, that's a really tough one, and I'm really glad that I will, you know, I'm not qualified to be a voter, will never be a voter. That's something, that's a burden I think you gentlemen are going to have to bear because there's going to be some political uh, ramifications if he doesn't get in, if you, if you keep him out ultimately. I pointed out last year how many drops he had, and then that turned out to be a real ugly thing, and I got yeah. some nasty notes. So did and Ron. Yeah. Yeah, I did the same thing. It got pulverized. It's amazing. Yeah, and, it, and they, they, went, they even tried to say it was, you know, fake stats. Well, it was by Stats LLC. The company's actual name was Stats. Those were actual <laughs> stats. <laughs> Excellent. And he dropped, uh, I can't remember the number off the top of my head, but essentially it's 7% of, of targets, not, not of catches, but of targets, whereas all the other guys where we're talking Harrison Rice, you know, you know who we're talking about. It's always four, five at the most. Larry Fitzgerald is at 1.7%, and Terrell Owens is at seven. That's a big difference. And remember, Stats Inc. is very generous when they're, when they're scoring those things. If there's any doubt whatsoever, they don't call it a drop. I mean, it had to be obvious. Hey, John, as always, been a slice. Thanks for the time. You're welcome. <laughs> Thanks, John. Got it. That was NFL historian John Turney, a pro football journal. Up next, Hall of Fame semifinalist Alan Fanica. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. Our next guest is one of the most decorated, well, which means he's one of the most qualified candidates in the Hall of Fame's class of 2018 semifinalist. Former guard Alan Fanica checked all the boxes during his NFL career, including the Super Bowl win, and he's been a finalist in his first two years of Hall of Fame eligibility. Now he's with us again one year after he appeared on this program last December. Hey, Alan, thanks so much for rejoining us. Oh, my pleasure. Alan, as, as I said, you're one of the most decorated candidates in this class and, and in last year's class and in the class before that. But you haven't made it to the final 10 in the first two years of voting. Question for you. Are you frustrated or perplexed by that? Because, frankly, we are. <laughs> um, uh, you know, it, it's, it's a little bit like peeking behind the door, and, and that's what gets you. Because you come into town, you do the events, you go to the fundraisers. 
um, and then you know, and then you get the results, and you know, and it, it, everybody's deserving, right? It, where this is just, uh, uh, you know, where there's a camaraderie amongst everybody, the finalists that are there, and uh, uh, so you get there, and it's kind of like the pick behind the door, and, and that's what kind of gets you a little bit frustrating uh, uh, is, is after the fact because you go to all these things and, and you meet all the great guys that are in the Hall of Fame, and. Um, you know they're they're talking about it at the uh, the events and the banquets. Uh, so that's a little bit that gets to you. Alan Will Shields started 223 career games, went to 12 Pro Bowls, was an All Decade choice. As a guard, what does it tell you uh, that this selection committee made a player with his credentials wait four years for induction? Uh, you know, going through the process, I, I don't know that there's any uh, any anything that I can like peg uh, as. Uh, 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 a one a one shoe fits a little bit like uh, you know people are talking about the uh, the college playoff scenario and how it's different uh, you know we're just uh, finding out the final four now uh, um, but uh, you know how how they uh, I hear people talk about how it's different every year and you, one shoe doesn't fit uh, one system that every every year um, so uh, you know it, it depends uh, man Will's a great guy uh, and, and I'm surprised it, it took him that long to get in because uh, he had a hell of a career. We had Tony Baselli on last week, and, and he said he didn't realize how much of a big deal this was until he was sitting around Saturday before the Super Bowl waiting uh, uh, to hear. And he said he knew it was a knock on the door, and there was a knock on the door, and his blood pressure went up, and it was the maid. And so <laughs> it really bummed him out. Uh, how much of a big deal is it for you? It's huge. It's huge. It's humongous. Uh, you know, um, uh, uh, for me as well, uh, you know, it's uh, my kids are, are, are younger, uh, so it's a chance to, to share a little piece of, uh, of my career with them, uh, a big moment. Uh, so, so that's that's definitely a, a huge thing for me to be able to share that with them. My oldest uh, does remember, but she was young, uh, but my younger two don't really remember much. Uh, so so that, that's really big and important for me. Uh, but um, you know, it's uh, it, it definitely gets nerve wracking when uh, you know we're normally doing something with the kids. The last two years, you know, we go to the uh, the NFL experience or something, and then it's like, all right, it's time to head back to the hotel room, and that's when the uh, uh, the nerves uh, in the whole family start ratcheting up, and uh, you know, the little guys are bouncing off the wall and stuff like that. So it definitely gets uh, it gets a little interesting about the time when uh, they tell you to start uh, uh, expecting a knock. We're speaking with former guard and now Hall of Fame candidate Alan Fanica on the Talk of Fame Network, and you can find us on the web at talkoffamenetwork.com or on Twitter at, at Talk of Fame Net. And, Alan, uh, as I've said, you've been through that wait twice now. Uh, I'm going to ask you the same question we asked Tony Baselli, and it sort of follows what Ron was just talking about. Um, but listeners may not know that while voters are sequestered, while the three of us and, and 45 others are sequestered the day before the Super Bowl, um, sometimes for eight or nine hours um, doing the voting, the candidates are in the hall, are in that Super Bowl city, awaiting the results. As you mentioned, you're doing something else. You're in the hotel room. You're out at lunch or something else, uh, but you're off in your hotel room. So you talked about the peek behind the door that you get when you're you're there. Can you give us a peek behind the door to that Saturday? How difficult is that wait? And, and do you have any stories to tell us from the first couple of years? Um, so, so both years we've gone and done the, uh, the NFL experience with the kids, um, and just had a, had a blast and, and especially, uh, especially my first year, uh, you know, it, it was just great to be there and was just really enjoying the whole process and, and being there that, um, 
uh, it didn't really hit me till it was like, all right, it's time to go back to the room. Uh, and, and, uh, you know, you gotta get dressed and you gotta wait for the knock and all this stuff. And, uh, it, uh, it, it just, that's, that's when it starts to ramp up and, and get a little stressful. And, you know, the, the, my wife Julie knows and, and, you know, the kids start to know they know something could happen and they start uh, getting a little antsy. But, uh, my first year, we're back in the room, you know, it's, it's the five of us. I got three kids and, and me and the wife, and, and we're in there, and, and Julie and I are getting ready for the uh, NFL Honors Show, uh, and the kids are just literally bouncing off the walls. They're just, they, they, they're, they're trapped in a room and need to be running around town, and uh, they're literally bouncing off the walls while we are trying to get uh, ready for the show. And um, it's, uh, you know, it, it, that, that stressful moment, all of a sudden you get the knock. We, we got phone calls. We didn't get the knock. We got phone calls from people that, uh, uh, to wait longer, uh, that it could happen longer. Um, and uh, then it finally uh, came that year. That year, uh, we, uh, everybody got a knock no matter what. And um, the, uh, the knock came. Julie wasn't ready. She was, you know... Uh, in the midst of getting dressed, and I was like, "Can I open the door or not? Are you are you ready for whatever's about to happen <laughs> on the other side of this door?" You know, because uh, we had seen the the you know the the footage of the guys running in with the cameras and stuff like that, and she was like, "Just do it." <laughs> uh, and of course, it was not the the knock we wanted, but uh, uh, it's definitely a, it's an antsy moment that the, the whole family uh, you know gets to enjoy. Whereas when I was playing, you know, it was. It was, it was just me in the field, and you know they, you know I'm sure they had their 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 moments, but uh, they're they're right in the thick of it. They're like a field level with us this time. Alan, guys who finally do make it always preach patience to those waiting in the queue, but isn't that easier to accept once you've already crossed the finish line? And how patient are you? <laughs> uh, you know, I guess uh, it's out of your control, and you just. You have to be patient, but I'm, I'm definitely sure it, it is uh, a lot easier to say that once you're on the other side. Um, about every time I bump into uh, Kevin Green, he, that's what he—that's the first thing out of his mouth is uh, patience, brother, patience. <laughs> uh, but uh, you know, it's what, what else are you going to tell the guys that didn't get in, right? I mean, uh, the, the guys that were in your class that didn't get in. There, there's really no words that um, can, uh, uh, you know console whatnot uh, uh there's nothing really that you can say so um uh that's about as good as it gets uh and you know waiting is waiting and uh you know it's an honor uh to be in there you know i think uh i think that th- that question enters a whole nother level when you talk about guys that have been waiting uh decades uh that deserve to get in there uh that that's a whole nother uh, uh level of that question now, I'm sure, you know, I know as a player, you know, you were a guy who prepared uh, very hard every week for whoever it is you were going to be competing against. Uh, have you com- prepared at all in this case? Did you study the other guys on the list and say, well, you know, look, at this guy's pretty good or that guy was pretty good? Or you just sort of get the list and say, okay, you know, that's it and there's nothing I can do about it? You know, my first year I didn't know any better, and I didn't do that until we got there and you start meeting the guys and you start looking around the guys in the room. Uh, last year I did do a little peeking. Uh, you know, you just kind of start, you know, stacking well, whatever. I mean, you just start stacking guys up in whatever kind of, not even in order, but you do start kind of looking at it a little bit, I think, uh, or at least I did. Um, but, uh, you know, at the end of the day, there there is no... Uh, uh, 
rhyme or reason, I guess, to you know what happens one year versus the next. So it doesn't really it doesn't really do me any good. So I probably won't do it this year. <laughs> you know, you could build a pretty good team with that group at offensive line. Boy, the competition is stiff. Yeah, yeah, a lot of O linemen uh, at the moment. Uh, so uh, yeah, definitely uh, we could we could start a team uh, in our youth. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I'm going to ask you a tough question, Alan, uh, but I, I, I understand your body of work stands on its own. I understand that. But um, if you could stand in front of voters like the three of us today but have 45 others sit also here with the 48, and, and we do vote this month, oh, and tell us why you should move beyond the top ten to you know the, 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 the final five, what, what would you say? I mean, what would you tell us that might convince guys to say, you know what, let's just move this guy where he belongs. Let's put him in the Hall of Fame. Um, for me personally, yeah. Um, you know, I think uh, I think uh, it, it's hard to find uh, stats for for offensive linemen. I think um, I think especially my time uh, in Pittsburgh, um, the if there was a way to find the, the percentage of times the the ball went uh, uh, behind me uh, minus passing plays, um, I think uh, the amount of, of offense that uh, went through me. Uh, would be staggering compared to uh, every other, you know, offensive lineman or you know the next. I, I don't, I don't know how to quantify it or compare it, but uh, I, I think it would be an astronomical uh, stat to find out um, how many screens, how many uh, uh, pulling plays uh, that went to the right, but I pulled and was still leading the play. How many runs went right behind me? Uh, I think it would be a, a, a very large number because uh, the 10 years I was in Pittsburgh, uh, the offense, uh, the run game, uh, and all of our uh, pulling game uh, virtually went uh, through me. So uh, I think uh, if I had a, a way to get that uh, stat uh, or, or quantify it, that would be the one I would give. Alan, in your mind, what does a Hall of Fame guard look like? Is it, is it John Hanna? Is it Gene Upshaw? Is it Will Shields? Is it Alan Fanica? What does a Hall of Fame guard look like in your mind? You know, I think we all play the game differently, and I think that's uh, that's a great thing about every position. But I, you know, I think uh, we all uh, go about things in our own way, um, uh, better in space. Uh, you know, big, huge guys like Larry Allen. It just uh, road graded and uh, just you know literally moved the entire line. That, uh, that, that there's lots of different ways that uh, a Hall of Fame guard can look, and it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a case-by-case, case and, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting. Uh, you know, you watch guys just watching football and, uh, as a fan and uh, just to see everybody uh, and how they play. And I used to do that when I was playing. You know, you, you study guys, uh, man. Like you talk about Will Shields, uh, uh, you know, uh, get him out there watching him, and then I get him out there in a Pro Bowl, man, start picking his brain. Um, uh, you know, we, we all need, uh, as many tools in our, in our pocket as we can put and, uh, to, uh, to pick up, uh, little bits and pieces and, and put it in our game was, was always part of, uh, how I approached it. When you watch a game today, do you find yourself sort of drifting to watching the guards? Uh, and, and is there a guy who you particularly like, uh, who's playing today? Um, you know, I, I do. Uh, I do. Uh, I don't know. I don't keep up with the names as well uh, as I did when I played a lot. Um, uh, but but I do. I do definitely follow uh, offensive line play, um, and I definitely uh, love watching um, 
the game kind of as I as I studied. My brother-in-law got me tickets uh, uh, to go to the. Uh, Steelers uh, Dolphins playoff game last year, and he really wanted to use his tickets that he got. And I was like, you know, I can get some tickets. And he was like, no, 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 let's do these. And there were this this new club section where they closed off the uh, end zone in Pittsburgh, and um, the seats the seats you know some people you know might not enjoy the the end zone uh, seat, but I love. Alan Fanica, thanks so much for the time, and we will see you in Minneapolis. Sounds great, guys. Thanks, Alan. Thanks, Alan. That's former guard Alan Fanica. Up next, it's the two-minute drill. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. We're back, and there's that whistle again. That's the two-minute warning. It means we're close to the finish line. So, Ronnie, take us home with the two-minute drill. Did Andy Reid bench Marcus Peters for throwing an official's flag away and leaving the field, thinking he'd been thrown out when he hadn't? Or is it a bigger punishment making him continue to play for the Chiefs? Andy Reid should win a game, period. Andy Reid needs to win. Peters gives his best chance, so the punishment is to play. Oh, bad parents. Uh, the Broncos haven't lost eight straight games since they wore those brown striped socks in the 60s. Is the problem thin air, thin town, or the defection of Wade Phillips? None of the above. The problem is Peyton Manning and John Elway, both retired. When you don't have a Hall of Fame quarterback taking the snaps, you can look very ordinary very quickly. If Jets receivers Robbie Anderson and Jermaine Kears each end up with 1,000 receiving yards, what does that say about Brandon Marshall and Eric Decker? Says the Jets listen to George Jefferson. They're moving on up. It says they both need to get to Josh McCown's next team. Did the Jimmy G era begin in San Francisco last Sunday? Yes, it did, Ron, and now it's Jiminy Christmas there. If it didn't, the 49ers are in real trouble. Running back Tariq Cohen. Has scored a Tariq Cohen. Think about that. Has scored on a punt return, a rush, a reception, and throwing a pass. Last rookie to do it, Gail Sayers. Do they have anything else in common? Yes, sir. Neither goes to the playoffs. The orange sea on their helmets. Detroit has beaten only one team with a winning record, but finishes the season without facing another one. Did the Ford Foundation make up their schedule? No, the U.S. government did. It's called a bailout. It's the NFL's version of the mercy rule for teams that have never been to a Super Bowl in 50 years. <laughs> Should Aaron Rodgers play again this season after breaking his collarbone? Nope. As Ricky Waters would say, for who? For what? <laughs> yep. 10-6 and six look better than 8-8 eight and eight on the records of Ted Thompson and Mike McCarthy. Ooh. Goose's pal Kirk Cousins, who I think he's his cousin, is 1-10 in, <laughs> in games played on any day but Sunday. Is his favorite band Black Sabbath? No, you 2 is. And his favorite song is Sunday Bloody Sunday. As I recall, he was 28-12 and 12 on Saturdays at Michigan State. Cousins isn't the problem his team is. <laughs> oh, hold on. Des Bryant, Goose's pal, has 72 touchdown receptions, which is more than Michael Irvin and Bullet Bob Hayes. Which one do you want to throw to with the game on the line? Throw a bubble screen to Bullet Bob, and then I fire the starter's gun. Irvin if the game's on the line, Hayes if it isn't, and Bryant if there's no one else open. That's the end. We'd like to thank Alan Fanica, Simeon Rice, John Turney, and Gary Myers for joining us, Robert Harris Jr. for producing us, and you for listening to us. If you'd like to hear this or any podcast, just go to our website, that'd be talkoffamenetwork.com, or find us on iTunes or your podcast app. Otherwise, look for us next week at this time and at this station. We'll be here, and we hope you will be too.